This episode of New Politics was recorded on November 27, 2020, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, Mr Morrison goes to Tokyo and returns empty-handed. How much does it cost to become the head of the OECD? And we also look at lockdowns, military reports and the final parliamentary session of 2020. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, waiting for my pardon from President Trump. Last week we saw a lightning trip to Japan by the Prime Minister and we're still trying to work out what the purpose of that trip was. It was a 24-hour visit that really could have waited for another time and the eternal sticking point for signing the Reciprocal Access Agreement for shared military activities between Australia and Japan is the reluctance of the Japanese government to remove the death penalty for any offence Australian troops may commit when they're in Japan. And it seems like this issue still is a point of contention, although judging by this response, we can't be too sure. Will Australian troops be subject to the death penalty in Japan? Well, what we've been able to achieve is that Australia will meet all of its obligations under its international agreements in relation to that matter. So there has been progress over the issue of the death penalty? In progress of ensuring that Australia is able to meet its commitments under its international obligations, yes. Can you just explain what that is? That's exactly what I just explained to you. I'm not, un, I'm not clear how the document sets that out. It's, it's, it's satisfied in the series of documents which are now finalised as we move to the conclusion of the agreement, which we hope to be able to put in place next year. An overseas trip that really didn't need to be made, an agreement that isn't an agreement, and now that he's returned, Scott Morrison will be spending two weeks in quarantine at the lodge with his official photographer, and he'll access question time on a laptop from the comforts of his bedroom, and yet again, he'll avoid scrutiny. It's really great work if he can get it. I wonder if he realises that the jig is nearly up. So he's just enjoying the last few weeks. Of course, having said that, there's no real way I can see that they can remove him. Uh, Liberal Party laws state that you can only be removed as an opposition leader. Governor General's not going to step in. The court is unlikely to step in. As of speaking now, he's got the numbers in the lower house. But Australian politics has become a strange and unpredictable game. And I wonder if he knows that he's towards the end of his tenure. By the way, I'm not saying that he'll be gone next week or anything. He could be in for another 10 years, for all I know. But it's not the behaviour of a person secure in his position who has nothing to hide and who sees a future in his position. Of course, he's never liked scrutiny. And as more gets revealed about his time at Tourism Australia, at Tourism New Zealand, as treasurer, there's that black hole of his time at KPMG, which is apparently filled with all kinds of non-disclosure agreements. We can probably understand why he doesn't like scrutiny. Unfortunately, the job of Australian Prime Minister is one where there is a lot of scrutiny. This is going to cause him problems. I think we can see a similar experience to Gladys Berejiklian in his very near future. Well, politics can produce surprises at any given time. I'd be surprised if Morrison did leave in the next couple of weeks or the next couple of months, but 
who knows, anything could be out there that we don't know about. But I thought that his behaviour would have been more about the one-seat majority he's actually got at the moment. And possibly looking back to the 2019 election, where it was regarded as the miracle election, he's probably saying, well, this is bonus time as Prime Minister. If we look back at the time that he did become Prime Minister in August 2018, there was a feeling that he was going to have one of the shortest periods as Prime Minister ever, and who knows, he might have even been thinking that himself. And then in May 2019, he won an unlikely election that he probably wasn't even expecting. It is, I think, one of the stranger historical quirks. I think historians in you know, 40 or 50 years' time, should they bother to look at this period of time at all, will struggle to find how he got in. There's that horrible, cringeworthy photo of Morrison reaching out his elbow to do an elbow bump to the Japanese Prime Minister. And the Japanese Prime Minister does not look comfortable. This is the whole thing. Now, the interesting thing with the death penalty, to get back to that point, is that I think the Liberal Party tends to prefer the death penalty as an option. The conservative side of politics sees the death penalty as a viable option for for horrible crimes. I don't agree with the death penalty, but other countries have made other choices and that if you're under the jurisdiction of another country, you follow their laws and you take their punishments. Now, of course, the Australian Foreign Affairs will try and help you get out of that, unless your name is Julian Assange. Helping Australian citizens out of dire problems is the, the right thing to do, but it won't be the sticking point that it may well have been in the past. Um, And with Australian behaviour in Afghanistan, you can see why they might be worried. Well, the Japanese Prime Minister, he didn't seem to be so bemused by Morrison's elbow tap. He seemed to be more bemused about why is the Australian Prime Minister in Japan at this point of time? It, It was ostensibly to sign up the reciprocal access agreement. Now, that's a military arrangement that hasn't actually been signed yet, but it's an arrangement so that Australia and Japan can do their war games and tactics either in Japan or in Australia. It's pretty much a military friendship exercise as well. And of course, once you've got a military friendship agreement in place, that sets up better relationships overall between those two countries. And it's only the second country that's been searching for this reciprocal access agreement with Japan. But again, it gets back to that question, why now? What is the purpose of this trip? And it was only for 24 hours as well. This could have waited until another meeting where another series of diplomatic processes could have been tacked onto it. And of course, Morrison's decision to go to Japan right at this time for no great reason has caused great angst with China. And you just get the feeling that Morrison is quite relaxed about this worsening relationship between Australia and China. But there doesn't seem to be any endgame or strategy involved here. China will keep drip-feeding tariffs on Australian goods coming into China, and that's at the expense of Australian exporters. And this has all been caused by Morrison's poor diplomatic skills. There's a section of wealthy Australia that prefers more poverty, that prefers poorer economics. It drives Australian exports down, uh, the prices down, it drives wages down, it drives the Australian dollar down, making things cheaper. It creates a lot of misery, but if you're doing well out of this, you don't care. And it's and I don't want to throw every wealthy person into this. There are leading business people who want a strong economy. To irritate the burgeoning world power, China, and I think maybe burgeoning's wrong, I think they're a new world power, but they're a world power, 
seems to me to be irresponsible. I don't know if it's because Morrison thinks that America will help. I don't know if there's the vestiges of white Australia pushing through. It's just a very strange thing. There doesn't seem to be an understanding that you can be friends with two rival nations. You know, we were friends, we were very close to England and America when they were rubbing up against each other before Thatcher and, in fact, before World War Two, Indonesia and, and East Timor, you know, you can walk that diplomatic fine line. It takes skill, it takes knowledge, it takes experience. But Australia did have a very good foreign affairs department, probably still does in many ways. If Donald Trump had won the election, you might have seen an argument that Donald Trump's tendencies would be more towards a Scott Morrison-style government. But I don't think Joe Biden has that same level of interest and support for Scott Morrison. America and China do need to patch up their relationship as well. And a good economic relationship between America and China is good for the world economy. It's also good for the Australian economy. But perhaps the Australia-China relationship is dependent on some of those issues that we mentioned before about Morrison's tenure. If he feels that he's on borrowed time and, and everything else since the May 2019 election is considered to be a bonus, well, he won't be too fussed about the relationship with China if it deteriorates even further and especially if diminishing China fits into his personal ideology and his worldview. At the moment there are Australian coal ships stuck outside several Chinese ports and some of them have been there for several months and and of course the Chinese government is looking at any excuse to stop them coming through. There was a claim that the grade of coal was not high enough for their coal fire power stations. It was a similar story with the lobster cargo several weeks ago that there were health and quarantining issues with those lobsters. Now, we've been pointing this out in some of our previous podcasts, but this situation will continue for as long as the Liberal Party is in government. The Chinese government might be expecting Morrison to grovel or apologise or do something like that, but I can't see that happening. So this is a situation that will probably keep going on for some time to come, and there's really not very much that we can do about it. I think so. I I, I saw a article yesterday saying that Australian manufacturers have basically stopped, some manufacturers have stopped sending to China. I don't know that there's enough uh, holes in the rest of the world to fill. So we may be in this problem for some time yet. The other issue arising from Morrison's trip to Japan was the need for him to quarantine for two weeks on his return to Australia. That's the mandatory period for everyone arriving in Australia. Now, I didn't actually want to talk about this too much because this is exactly what the government would want us to do. But he, Morrison is also in quarantine with his official photographer. It's also a former News Corporation photographer, of course. There's no surprises there. And we've seen all of these happy snaps. Morrison in his board shorts and thongs. Morrison on the exercise bike. Morrison getting a COVID test. Morrison reading the newspaper. And as I've said, I don't want to talk about this too much, but here we are. Prime Ministers have always had photographers working in some capacity documenting their work and this is an important part of documenting the nation's history. The 
position of official photographer. It's only existed since 2013, and that's when Tony Abbott became the Prime Minister. And we do need to have a photographic record of the Prime Minister. But in Morrison's case, this is outright propaganda. And I think we need to question how the official photographer is being used, because it's certainly not in the public interest. It's been met with a lot of scepticism. I note even News Corp, as far as I can tell, I don't I don't read News Corp habitually, but of course it's it's still fairly pervasive, so you get to see it. I note that News Corp haven't really jumped on top of this apart from printing those few photos. And when I say jumped on it, promoted it as a positive thing and, you know, good one SCOMO type action. How he couldn't see that you are putting ammunition into your political opponent's hands by having ridiculous photos. Of course, this is the guy who built a cubby house, except he didn't build it. And then a chicken coop in a heritage-listed building, uh, Kirribilli House, where you're not allowed to keep chickens. So to have these sort of ridiculous notions of him doing his exercise bike and him having another Zoom meeting, actually, we've noted there hasn't been a lot of productivity. There hasn't been a lot of shots at him at his desk plowing through paperwork, which every other prime minister, there's always a shot of them either at an extremely tidy, well-organized desk showing that they've been productive or at a messy desk showing the level of work they have to do, depending on the prime minister. It's probably playing to some demographics. I don't think they would allow it to go on without it playing well somewhere, but to where I'm not sure. The other factor is that we've spent the past three or four minutes discussing all of this, and what it really does is it masks the the real story. It masks whatever is happening in in politics. So having the official photographer in the lodge for a two-week period, taking all of these happy snaps of Scott Morrison in his board shorts and thongs, exercise bike, COVID testing, whatever the case might be, a lot of the attention has been focusing on... Scott Morrison, the action man. Scott Morrison doing this, Scott Morrison doing that. And it should be focusing on the other sort of action that he has been getting up to over the past, well, pretty much over the past 13 years, ever since he's been an MP. All of these other matters related to the robo-debt, all of his performances when he was Minister for Social Security, his performance mm-hmm. as Treasurer, his performance as Prime Minister. There was also the Brereton War Crimes Report that came out last week. So we can, we can see that the official photographer is being used to deflect from the main issues of the day that Morrison is directly responsible for. And as, as you say, this plays out very well to a key demographic within the electorate. But overall, it's another distraction the media is happy to play along with. And this was the sole intention of the Prime Ministerial happy snaps. And robo-debt was a complete tragedy. And I don't mean that in a... I mean that in its proper, true, awful sense. People did commit suicide. It may not have been 2,000 people, but if it was one person, that's enough. People did get traumatised. It affected people's health. It affected people's well-being. And then to continue the disaster of it, the High Court, which is a conservative High Court, found that it was wrong. And the government now has to pay back one point, is it $1.2 billion? which they will no doubt botch, and that money will go into the wrong pockets. 
that $1.2 billion, that's the headline figure. That's the announcement. And as per most of the actions by this government, it's very big on the announcements, but very poor on delivery, as we're seeing with the almost non-existent delivery of bushfire recovery funds throughout most of this year. And with robo-debt, if those funds are ever paid out, it will probably be at $10 a week for the next 15 years for those people. The people that need it the most probably won't receive it and most of the money will probably disappear somewhere else. Mm. And this whole process also fits into a pattern. Whenever there is bad news for the government, Morrison goes overseas or he's nowhere to be seen or he gets up to some idiot media shtick or sometimes both. Now, this is a brilliant strategy if you're a government that wants to avoid scrutiny and cover over its poor performances. But the upshot is that it's a strategy that keeps poor governments in power and encourages corruption. And it's the public that will suffer from all of this. We haven't had a good government since 2013. I think that's fair to say. Some will argue 2007. There's maybe a stronger argument for maybe 2010. And by good government, I mean stable, not crisis-ridden, not burning a lot of energy on the minor politics, not the major politics. Certainly 2013, from Tony Abbott, we've had a basically an opposition in power doing opposition things. Yet there seems to be no will to fix this. And yeah, there's a deeper agenda somewhere. And I can't help but looking at this so-called national cabinet filled with mining and gas executives talking about gas-led recoveries on a commodity that is being basically uh, invented out of existence with better technologies coming through. Again, those historians in 40 or 50 years are going to, if they bother, is going to be some very interesting work. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, what the politicians get up to when they leave politics. We look at Matthias Cormann and his quest to become the boss of the OECD. Former Liberal Party Senator Matthias Cormann is the only MP to ever support three Prime Ministers on the one day. And we're referring to the 2018 Liberal Party Leadership Challenge where Cormann was doing the numbers and managed to pledge support for Malcolm Turnbull, Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison, all within the space of a few hours. Cormann resigned from the Australian Parliament in early November after 13 years as the Senator for the Liberal Party, and that includes seven years as the longest-serving Finance Minister ever. And as soon as he exited the door, he embarked on a taxpayer-funded excursion to become the next Secretary-General of the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, that's the OECD. Now, it has been revealed that in his quest to become the Secretary-General, that's been supported by eight government staff members, and he's been flying around in an Australian military jet at the cost of $4,000 per hour. Now, he's virtually got 
next to no chance of becoming the Secretary General. But when asked about the cost of this venture, Morrison claimed that it was value for money. And he also claimed that Corwin would have caught the coronavirus if he travelled on a commercial flight, which is not true. I've actually been on several long-haul flights since the coronavirus started, and I'm COVID-free. To me, this seems like such an extravagant outlay for what essentially is a post-politics job for a mate who helped Morrison become Prime Minister. There was a joke they used to talk about George Pierce, who'd served in several governments because he was, this is back in the 20s and 30s, because he'd been in the Labor Party and was kicked out of the Labor Party and went across. And the joke was is, uh, that the phone rings and he picks it up and they say, oh, hi, George. I'm wondering if you'll be in the cabinet, you know, in my cabinet. And George Pierce says, I'd love to. Who's speaking? I think we could probably update that to Matthias Cormann. A very poor politician, seemingly a very personable fellow, Penny Wong, and he have a genuine friendship, apparently. But when we look at his substantial policy gains, we have five budgets that didn't go through and two that went through greatly changed. We have a lot of bungling. We have a lack of understanding of the impact of bad policy on the Australian community. We have a sense of a guy who has rotted and he's more of a disappointment than say a Dan Tehan in that Corman emigrated to Australia apparently not speaking English and you know got his way to a very important and senior job in Australia and held onto it for seven years and did nothing with it. So I don't know what they expecting him to do with the OECD. And he, he has very, very little chance of getting it. The other thing to remember is that Malcolm Turnbull stopped Kevin Rudd from getting a similar job with the United Nations, where Kevin had a bit more chance of it and was far more eminently qualified for the job. So I don't know why Australian Labor is supporting this either. I've never been a great believer of that idea of longevity in politics as, as being a key attribute for success. So Matthias Cormann, he has been the longest serving finance minister. He was there for, for seven years. But during that time, and that's from 2013 onwards, the economy has been tanking. It's been close to crashing. Now, being the finance minister is not like being the treasurer, but they've got a related position where they work in unison with the treasurer. And manage the economy overall. So the economy has been tanking, actually ended up in recession. Now, we can argue the case as to whether this was all caused by COVID-19 or something else, but it was pretty much poor financial management that made the economy start tanking. And Matthias Cormann has been the finance minister for all of that time. So mm. if we look at that credibility or that credential on the in the financial sphere, well, he hasn't really got that much there. The other factor is that as part of his pitch to various OECD members, Cormann's been pushing this idea of we must have net zero emissions as soon as possible. And he, and he said the effective global action on climate change is an absolute must. But these are just empty words because when he was actually in government, Cormann did his best to deter climate change action. He helped repeal the carbon pricing legislation. He worked against the National Energy Guarantee, helped abolish the Climate Commission, established programs that deterred or removed renewable energy, championed a gas-led recovery, and now he's pushing out tonnes of carbon emissions by jetting all around Europe in a private taxpayer-funded jet. Now, 
I'm, I'm pretty sure that if the Australian public wasn't able to see through Cormann's hypocrisy, the, the Europeans certainly will. A quick Google search on Matthias Cormann, and you can bet that any selection committee has not only read their CVs very closely, but also done a Google search and seen, you know, what scandals, what has the tenor of this person's life been? The OECD is very aware, I think. And if a Corman to jet around in a private jet when there are commercial flights available, uh, that, that he'd get on. He'd get on on first class, and if it wasn't this flight, it'd be the flight in the next hour. The obtuseness of the government astounds me still. If Matthias Coleman ends up being the best person selected for the job, and I doubt that very much, he is an Australian citizen at the moment, but there will be no advantage in having an Australian citizen in that position. What they will do will be according to what the will and desire of the OECD is. And Morrison, of course, has been, it's been a form of bureaucratic nationalism that it's best for an Australian to head up the OECD, even though it's primarily a European organisation. But in the unlikely situation that he does end up getting the position as Secretary General, it's not like he'll be able to make favours for the Australian government or the Australian community or anything like that. The main person that this is going to be beneficial to is Matthias Cormann. I'm wondering if it's that attempt by the, I'll call them the Murdoch right, to try and get into Europe, send someone who very superficially looks like they might be qualified, get them in, and then now that they've lost America by the looks of things, they're about to lose Australia by the looks of things, and by March, I'm told, they'll have lost England. I wonder if it's a way of finding new, you know, and that's maybe a little bit conspiratorial or such, but... I don't see any advantage to anything that's happening here. He won't get it, I don't think. If he does, good on him, and we will congratulate him. If he does get it, he won't do a terribly good job, probably. And again, if he does, we will correct that record. And you're absolutely right. He can't advantage Australia in any way on this, except maybe a little bit of prestige. And I guess the prestige that uh, Julia Gillard got with her jobs is something that rankles them and Kevin Rudd with the various UN jobs and other similar international body jobs that they've both done. And they've both been, I'm told, very good in the jobs and well-liked and achieved stuff. Scott Morrison even lobbied the president-elect of the US, Joe Biden, and that's when he made the congratulations call to Joe Biden last week. And, and you're thinking, well, this is the time when you're ringing up the United States president-elect, soon to be president in January next year. You're ringing them up to congratulate them on, on a hard-fought election victory. And then at the end of it, you start lobbying them about Matthias Cormann becoming the Secretary General of the OECD, even though Biden can't do anything about it. But I guess it just shows how deluded this whole process has been and how the delusion about particular MPs in Australia about their abilities to do these particular sorts of jobs. The other point that you referred to before was that Anthony Albanese, the Labor leader, he actually supported Cormann's nomination as well because it was seen to be the right thing to do in these sort of circumstances. But do you think the Albanese should have possibly implemented some sort of payback after the LNP refused to nominate Rudd for the UN position? 
And the, the other factor is that now the media is saying that because all of this information about the $4,000 per hour jet is coming out now, now the media is saying that Albanese is the one that should, should share responsibility for nominating Cormen in the first place. I, I can see what Anthony's trying to do. And he's trying to get opposition away from being that Tony Abbott completely negative. And it's the same with Mitch McConnell in the United States. And it would have been the same in Britain, except the Conservative Party were in government, which is why they struggle very much. The block everything, the argue everything, the refuse everything tactic. So for Anthony to say, no, we're going to go, when they go low, they we go high, you know, Michelle Obama type thing. And normally I would agree. And as I said, I don't think it's completely without merit, but... Matthias Cormann is a terrible choice for the job. I don't think payback is the way to go either. Like I, I think payback, there's a saying, you know, if, if you're going to kill for revenge, dig two graves or something like that. But I think it's time for Labor to start doing some very hard opposition. And it's things like refusing a pair to uh, the member for the seat of banks. It's refusing to support an ill-qualified candidate for a job and then refusing to support a jet to go all the way, even if it's a symbolic refusal. From the outside, the Morrison government is on a very thin paper castle that's on very thin ice and it's a hot day. Not much is going to let it fall. And if they're serious about wanting to be in government, they could push it. You might say, well, they're not ready for government. They're still working through policies and stuff. Sure, but fortune favours the bold. Grasp the nettle, carpe diem, all of that. I think it's time for Anthony to start fighting Tories because you don't want to be consigned to the dustbin of history for inaction at a point where we need action. How many pizzas does it take to cause a lockdown of an entire city? Well, I think we found out the answer to that question when the South Australia government locked down Adelaide for seven days. That was reduced to three days after it was discovered a worker in a Woodville pizza bar had lied about contact tracing. But I think the main point is that the issue that caused the coronavirus outbreak in Adelaide, and that's the flaws in the hotel quarantine system for overseas arrivals, they were exactly the same as the outbreak in Melbourne several months ago, albeit with a totally different outcome. But the media, especially the Adelaide Advertiser, another news corporation newspaper, they seem to be quite sympathetic to the plight of the South Australia government, unlike the outrage that it showed towards the Victoria government several months ago. But has, has this lockdown gone, or did it go a little bit too far, or did it reach the right balance? I think uh, Premier Marshall was right to lock down. It is a terrible, terrible disease and we have to jump on it. You know, it's something that they don't seem to understand in New South Wales. It's something that they did understand in Victoria and it, I know it was hard and awful for Victorians, but not as hard and awful as an overstressed uh, hospital system filled with dying people. 
Queensland seemed to understand it. I think South Australia did the right thing. I'd have probably gone for 14 days or even because I think the disease takes 14 days to present in some cases. Nonetheless, that hard lockdown, as hard and as awful and as disadvantageous and everything as it is, was worth it because one person gave it to 17 others. They tried saying that it was a different strain that was far more contagious. That turned out to be not the case. And it it is hard to know what to do too. As hard as I've been on governments and my instincts are to, to go hard, go early. Worked in New Zealand, worked in Victoria when they went hard anyway. Worked in Queensland. Well, it seemed to be the right course of action to take on, but for some reason... Premier Steve Marshall wanted to apportion as much blame as possible onto the man who's become known as the the pizza guy. He's the 36-year-old Spanish national who was working at the Woodville Pizza Bar. But the issue is that coronavirus did exist in Adelaide and some type of lockdown would have been necessary. But lockdown seemed to be against Liberal Party ideology and Marshall was very keen to make it seem like someone else had caused him to act in this particular way. And you'd also expect that health bureaucrats would have asked a few more questions or completed further investigations before recommending a full lockdown. But in keeping with Liberal Party strategies and processes, it's easy to blame someone else, even if it's just a lowly pizza bar worker rather than a government or health department taking on responsibility. There's a pattern, isn't there? Like, remember when the three girls snuck up from Melbourne to Queensland and and caused an outbreak. And instead of looking at how they were able to sneak through, what were the the issues? And not to place blame, but, you know, what were the weaknesses that they were able to sneak through? How could they subvert the system, blah, blah, blah? It was these three girls who, dog whistle, dog whistle, dog whistle, have brown skin, went to Queensland and ruined it for everybody. And it's the same with the pizza guy who's Spanish national, dog whistle, dog whistle, dog whistle. It's not his fault in particular. What's the issue in the system that allowed it to happen? And then if it turns out that, yeah, he was just a selfish, criminal, you know, negligent, okay, that's fine. I suspect he wasn't. I suspect, like most people who have read it, it was completely inadvertent and maybe not even known. And when you get the those types of jobs where you don't have sick leave, you don't have insurance, you know, every hour you take off is another... $15 or $30 less in your wallet. So a, a day off can be one seventh of your weekly wage or one fifth if you have if you have time off. The issue is not some relatively low paid worker or some person spreading things. It's what in the system allowed them to be able to spread it. And I think that's the issue. Australia does have a tradition of putting the military on a pedestal and rightfully or wrongly, we're not going to argue the case for that today. But that took a sharp blow with the news about the allegations of war crimes. That was the Brereton report that was released last week and it found that at least 39 Afghans were murdered by special forces from Australia acting in Afghanistan. And the Inspector General of the ADF has recommended 19 personnel be prosecuted for war crimes. This is actually quite a quite a big deal. The historical context came out and they found that Australians had committed war crimes uh, in other conflicts, World War I, World War II, etc. We weren't there. I think it's best 
to wait for the trials to come out when further evidence comes out. But for the ADF to say, yes, these guys did the wrong thing means that something very bad has gone down. I want to just point out, too, that most of Australian military heroes have been healers. Simpson and the Donkey, Weary Dunlop, the Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels, as they were called, Nancy Wake. They were medical people, at least working in the medical branch. I think that's important to remember because Australian warrior tradition isn't merely the rats at Tobruk or the Anzacs at Gallipoli. There's a bit more to it. And it's heartbreaking to see that this has happened, but hopefully the right things will result from it. So these prosecutions and, and trials, they will take some time to resolve. There have been some suggestions that it could be up to a decade. Just looking at this politically, though, Prime Ministers have always, they've affiliated themselves with the military. So if we look at Billy Hughes and that little digger image that he had all those years ago, Bob Hawke ramped it up a lot. John Howard amplified it when he was Prime Minister. Tony Abbott loved it. And more recently, we saw Scott Morrison scooting around in a military tank during the last Queensland election campaign. The Brereton report is definitely bad news for the Australian military. These are very strong allegations of war crimes committed in a foreign country. Morrison does have that propensity to drape himself in the military flag, but he also does have that propensity to disassociate himself from anything deemed to have a negative image. So perhaps the Australian military will find out what a true friend of the military Morrison actually really is. And I'd say that we probably won't be seeing him travelling around in a tank during the next federal election campaign. I think a better leader would not act that way. (laughs) Um, The reckoning, the justice needs to happen, needs to be found. A whole lot of names have been thrown around in this and who, who was involved and who wasn't and I think the military actually does want to clear this up. That's the sense I'm getting. I, I could be wrong. you know. And it's a problematic thing when prime ministers get involved. Often they look like little boys playing at soldiers rather than any serious contender. You know, Tony Abbott training with the SAS. Tony was genuinely fit enough to train with the SAS. But it seemed to me to be currying the wrong type of favour. Certainly, Prime Ministers turning up and inspecting troops and, you know, having a photo op uh, is par for the course and in some cases even appropriate. But riding around in tanks and putting on helmets and thinking that you're Rambo but looking more like Sergeant Schultz from Hogan's Heroes, it's just a terrible thing. And, of course, it's it's a government who pr- who would rather build war memorials and shed crocodile tears over the dead than put in soldier rehabilitation and veteran health as a priority. And so there's that rankle of hypocrisy too. that infamous quote from von Clausewitz that war is a continuation of politics by other means and we might be having some war games in federal politics coming up soon. 
December has traditionally been the killing season in politics and it's the time of the year where there can be a circuit breaker for that particular side of politics. They can then have a break over Christmas and then be energised for the forthcoming year. Mark Latham and Kevin Rudd mounted successful challenges in the month of December, as did Tony Abbott. Over in Western Australia, they've started their season a little bit early uh, with the resignation of the WA leader of the opposition, Lisa Harvey. And that just happened four months before the WA elections, so that will be a huge spanner in the works for the WA Liberal Party. Federal Parliament sits next week for the final session of 2020. Will there be any movement in the Labor Party with their leadership? There is a possibility of an election in the second part of 2021. Would there be any appetite for change now, or would Labor MPs be satisfied with the performance of Anthony Albanese? I don't know. I mean, one of the things is who replaces... You know who are the front runners? Jim Chalmers, who's just announced that he's uh, that he's sick, and you know we wish him we wish him all the best, as we do anyone in those circumstances. Tanya Plibershek, Mark Dreyfus, I guess, is there. I guess there's not a lot of shortage of people, but how well known they are and how popular they are is problematic. You did make that point before when we were discussing Labor's support for Matthias Cormann with that OECD position that now is the time for Labor to start getting its political act together, considering that there might be an election next year. We're well over the halfway point of this electoral cycle and it's time for Labor to stop just offering as much support as possible to the government during a time of pandemic. Now, That was the main reason offered by Albanese at the beginning of this year, that Labor will support the government during a time of crisis. But this pandemic has already been going on for nine months. Australia has managed the coronavirus very well, but we don't know how long this is going to go on for or when the vaccine will become available. Although there were suggestions that it will now become available in March next year. So that's pretty good news. But I guess the issue is that as a political party in opposition, you don't want to keep just offering support to the government of the day all the way up until the next election and not have anything to show for it politically. There needs to be some point of difference and the Labor Party needs to engage with the electorate in a far more substantial way. I I think so. I I, I think so. I mean, Part of me wondered if Lisa Harvey actually showed that she was a decent candidate by realizing she couldn't win. I think McGowan is the most popular state leader in the in the country, despite News Corp's efforts to tell you it's Gladys. As for Labor, I think the popular choice, at least from the centre and the left, would be Penny Wong, but she's in the she's in the Senate, and I think has pretty much completely denied any moves to ambition to move to the lower house and she does a great job in the senate too i I think the main issue is can they get in someone who can be ready for a mid-2021 election or even election snap election called in march or february i don't think scott morrison has the courage to call a snap election but you never know the polls might come through in a way that gives him a sense that he might win one or two seats and he goes for it. Can you think of anyone who might be a viable replacement in for the Federal Labor Party? 
No, well, that's pretty much it. It would be looking at the Labor Party would be looking at either Jim Chalmers or Tanya Plibersheik. But we do have to remember that Anthony Albanese would be a contender as well. He's actually the incumbent. But, uh, you know, there's a number of different possibilities. But politicians generally, they don't want to sit on the opposition benches forever. And by the time the next election is called, if it is towards the end of next year, well, that's going to be close to eight and a half years sitting in opposition and most MPs go into parliament so that they can be in government they don't want to hang around in on the opposition benches forever and my feeling is that it will get down to obviously it gets down to the Labor caucus but it gets down to how impatient are they going to be about getting into office the current number of Labor caucus members is 94 and of this number only 41 of them have ever spent time in government and that means that the, the balance of those people, they're quite anxious and quite restless about getting into government. So if they can see that there's no chance of winning the next election under their current leader, Anthony Albanese, well, they'll, they'll be agitating for, for change and they'll be agita- agitating for change quite quickly. And also, conversely, those long-term MPs in the Labor Party, they've only had six years of government over the past 20, 25 years or thereabouts. And you'd be thinking, well, look, can I keep going in opposition? I know what it's like to be in government. Being in in opposition is really, really hard work. And you'd think, well, they'd be either agitating for change themselves or they'd be thinking, well, can I continue in opposition for another three years or is it time to tender my resignation and retire? Yeah, it's it's a tough call. And there's a waste of some really good Labor people and this is going back to 1949, who spent, you know, what, 23 years in opposition and then 16 years in opposition and now another eight years in opposition. And, you know, all these talented people on the left, and I'm not until recently, you know, there were plenty of, there were talented people on the right too. It would um, drain you in a way that the daily rigours of ministerial responsibility wouldn't. You know, oppositions struggle to get media attention. Oppositions struggle to get their message out. Oppositions very rarely have wins on the floor of parliament in terms of voting wins. The waste of talent. And we can say that for, you know, the Greens, the Liberal parties in Queensland and Victoria, maybe. Maybe not so much Liberal Party in Victoria at the moment. But, you know, I'm sure that there were good people in the past who sat there and couldn't do what they wanted to do. Well, quite often you look out into the political landscape and if you're unhappy about how it's all travelling within your political party, you look out into that political horizon and you do wonder, well, how will this change and what will change? But then all of a sudden it does change and then you look back and think, well, of course that was going to happen. So something might happen over the next week or two in federal politics or nothing might happen. But whatever the case is, it's going to be a very interesting end to the year. It's been quite a spectacular year and we'll find out what happens in a few weeks' time. I call the Prime Minister. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker, and I rise to oppose the motion moved by the Leader of the Opposition. And in so doing, I say to the Leader of the Opposition, I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Not now, not ever. 
Yes, it's Julia Gillard's famous misogyny speech. And if you've got politically minded friends who'd like to receive a Julia Gillard misogyny speech t-shirt or even a backpack or a coffee mug, I think this would be a perfect Christmas gift. What about you, David? Will you be getting one of these t-shirts? I want the t-shirt, the hoodie, the mini skirt, the coffee cup, the mouse pad, the uh, iPhone. I want the lot. I don't see how I've lived without it for so long. If you would like to order some nice things for your friends or for yourself for Christmas, all of these items are available on our website shop at newpolitics.com.au. So we've got the Julia Gillard material up there. We'll be adding some other things up there as well. So keep a lookout for it. That's it for this new politics podcast. And just a reminder, if you offer $50 of support or more, we'll send you a copy of our new book, Divided Opinions. We don't beg, plead, beseech or claim the end of journalism is nigh. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do and want to support independent journalism, go to our website, newpolitics.com.au. All the details are there. And don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in. I'm Eddie Djokovic, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.